This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. In the 1950s, Jerry Viss had an uneventful, blue-collar, stickball-in-the-street childhood in Patterson, New Jersey. That is, until his father, who had been no more than a vaporous bring-home-the-bacon presence, nearly killed himself with alcohol and suddenly got religion. His determination to inflict his newfound faith on all he knew changed Jerry's life forever. This story is an excerpt from Jerry Viss's new memoir, I'm Not Here, Strange Relatives, A Stranger Boarding School, and The Saving Grace of Art and Love. It alternates between reality and a fantasy playing out in Jerry's mind. Jerry Viss has an MFA in fine art and taught for many years in public school and college. He is the author of two memoirs, Patterson Boy and I'm Not Here. Coming in on a wing and a prayer. Written by Jerry Viss. Read by Colin Wasmond. In 1946, when I was seven years old and learning to cross streets, I was told to look left, then right, then back again to the left. My friend Buddy, who lived upstairs, forgot this, and I saw him struck by a car as I watched from my living room. Years later, I was guilty of doing the same thing, not looking both ways, except it had to do with a place, its people, and the way they thought. Fast forward to 1951. I was a happy kid living in Patterson, New Jersey, with lots of friends, a secure home, loving mother, and newly acquired freedom to go off on my own. Then, my father, a recent born-again Christian, shunted me off to a religious boarding school in rural Virginia, with kids who talked funny and thought I was sinful beyond hope because I lived so close to New York City. I was buried under a heap of rules burdensome enough to collapse a pack horse. And as far as I could tell, I was the only one bothered by it. What was most difficult during those teenage years was that it didn't matter how many times I looked both ways. The unexpected always ran me over. It was a dark and stormy night as the Enola Gay lifted off the runway at the Caldwell Airfield on its third historic meeting with Destiny. No, 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 no. That's too simple. There was a severe storm the night the Enola Gay lifted off the runway at the Caldwell Airfield on its third historic meeting with Destiny. I wasn't satisfied. I needed more oomph for a what-if story. As an only child, I habitually talked to myself. 
Jerry, a summoning call from my mother. I pretended I didn't hear. Let's start over, I said to myself. The let's word was, of course, me talking to the other me. The night sky darkened, and the stars twinkled out as storm clouds began to cover the golden twilight, just as the Enola Gay lifted off the runway at the Caldwell Airfield into an approaching severe storm on its third historic meeting with destiny. Hmm, that's worse. I don't like that either, I whispered under my breath. Yeah, you're right, came an agreeable other-me response. These made-up stories were usually instigated by some weirdness that occurred, or that I heard about, or I didn't like. Like my sixth-grade teacher, Miss Sickles, at PS12. For a while, my friend Dennis and I made them up together before we fell afoul of the law and his mother. We had started to act out the stories. In the case of Miss Sickles, we actually shot the wrong teacher with our pea shooters and wound up getting involved with the police. We called them what-if stories. I hadn't made one up for quite a while, but my serious, desperate, disagreeable, fast-approaching, terrible situation called for one immediately. The problem? These stories often took on a life of their own, as if there was a secret agreement between me, the storyteller, and some perverse hidden part of me that shanghaied the tale to lead me on a merry chase. My mother called again from the kitchen. Jerry, I need you to set the table for supper. I replied, yeah, I just need to finish something, Mom. But I thought, well, at least she didn't ask about that stupid questionnaire. The freshly painted Enola Gay stood out crisply against the setting sun as the determined pilot willed the Super Fortress bomber to climb above an oncoming hurricane. That's better. I like this. It was in the Patterson Evening News that the Enola Gay was going to fly south from the Caldwell Airfield at the end of the week. I knew immediately that this was my one and only best chance to solve my dilemma. But that meant I would need to sneak on board the plane and hide in the rear gun turret before... Jerry! My mom called again. I thought, please, God, don't ask about the questionnaire. Jerry, have you finished that questionnaire for school in Virginia? Your father will be home from work soon, and the first thing he'll want to do is see it. I didn't respond. I had just completed the Strombecker wooden model kit of the B-29 bomber of the Enola Gay, used in the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. It was the last of the World War II models I needed to complete the set of warplanes suspended from my bedroom ceiling, which they shared with my super day-glow stars. Jerry, uh, I thought. Is it done? Is what done? That questionnaire. Uh, no, not yet. You've only got a half hour. Do that now and I'll set the table. I was looking through my desk drawer for an eye hook and some nylon fishing line to hang the B-29 among my other planes. I didn't think the Enola Gay had ever been used for anything after its bombing run over Japan. The Enola Gay's second of three meetings with Destiny was known only to me and a few friends. Thanks to Mrs. Levy's geography lesson in fifth grade, I had the plane pick up and carry my hometown of Patterson to an Iowa cornfield 
so it could be the second largest city in that state, a step up from third place in New Jersey. The next meeting with Destiny was my hijacking of the plane to fly me far away, anything to avoid going to Shenandoah Valley Academy in three weeks. The paperwork my mother asked about had been lost in the chaos atop my desk for weeks and was now spattered with the paint I had used to finish the Enola Gay. The top of the questionnaire simply asked for name, address, age, and sex. The next part wasn't too bad. Where do you attend church? How many years? Born or converted to the gospel of Christ? Are you a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? How did you hear about our school? Plus ten more questions. And then the next part. Write a 250-word essay on why you want to attend Shenandoah Valley Academy. My honest opinion could be stated in five words. I don't want to go, which is what I wrote on the form. I was standing on my desk chair with my back to the door, adjusting the dramatic angle of the suspended Enola Gay bomber, when my father entered the room. I froze as if I were glued to the Enola Gay with ducko cement. Have you finished the essay? Silence. No, he assumed. Why not? I heard him rummage around my desk for the questionnaire. What's this you wrote? I don't want to go? There was a pause, which seemed to last for several weeks while I remained, arms overhead, back to my father, stuck to the Enola Gay in a position that must have looked like surrender. Oh, Jerry, you must go. You must. It's God's will. His tone was now contrived and mellifluous. He had been trying all summer to sell me on the idea. He had gone from a dictatorial, It's God's will, to this over-the-top sugary version, followed by a forced smile. It made our confrontations easier, but never changed the direction of the issue. Only Father knows best. I never became belligerent or hostile, just completely depressed. If I had been sentenced to life in prison for a crime I'd not committed, I couldn't have been more dismal. But as I learned, dismal doesn't cut it with God. Maybe with the devil, but not God, and certainly not with his handyman, my father. My father had been saying God's will now for two years since he nearly killed himself with alcohol and then got religion. He said it so often that it had morphed into a single word, God's will. It was now his habitual response to every intrusive or unpleasant thing that anyone other than himself encountered. Your dog died? God's will. You have to sit in the corner for an hour? God's will. Your best friend just moved out of state? God's will. At this point in my life, being sent to boarding school was also God's will, not my father's. To my ear, my father's God's will sounded like God's will. I asked, how can I, or anyone, take such an overworked notion seriously? Was there nothing on this earth that wasn't God's will? In those two years, he had gone from a sperm donor father who had left me to my own devices for the first eleven years of my life, to an omnipresent broken record of God's willings. 
I'll make it real easy for you. I am going to write that essay for you, and then you'll sign it, he said dictatorially. Still standing on the chair, adjusting the Enola Gay as he left the room, my mind eagerly slipped away. The plane broke through the edge of the hurricane into smooth air and leveled off. Since there was only a light crew manning the Enola Gay, I had been able to sneak aboard and hide in one of the side gun turrets. We must have been quite high up now, for I was getting very cold in that unheated part of the plane. I increased the angle of the suspended model to make it more dramatic, which better suited the swooping wanderings of my escapist mind. I really liked the drama of the angle, but knew somewhere in the recesses of my brain that a bomber would never be in that position unless it was going to crash. But it looked so good from my bedroom door, I left it that way. Are you working on it? my mother asked. It took me a second to realize which it she meant. Ugh, the questionnaire. Dad said he'd do it. When did he say that? He's not home yet. He's not? Hmm. Had I imagined him there in my room? It was a moment when I realized that, as an only child, I was spending way too much time in my head. Or was it the what-if story tyrant dragging me about? Or both? A what-if story about the Enola Gay, inside a what-if story about my father writing the essay. Wow! Fantastic! I mean, I need his help, I said to my mother as a cover. It was time to put my plan in motion. I climbed out of the gun turret, found a parachute, and put it on. No one seemed to be about. I took out my gun and moved toward the pilot's cabin. With my free hand, I jerked open the cabin door, rushed across the few feet that separated us, and jabbed the gun into the pilot's left side, just below his shoulder blade, in line with his heart. According to my fifth grade teacher, the heart is located slightly left of center. Change course, or I'll shoot, I demanded. The co-pilot next to him swiveled to look at me. Turn around, you, I said, taking command of the moment. If you shoot me, the plane will crash, was the pilot's desperate response. No, it won't. The other guy will fly it. Shut up and take me to Montana. This was a Sierra Madre do-as-I-say film moment, and I was Humphrey Bogart, the tough guy. Montana! Montana, the pilot said, with mounting hysteria. We don't have enough fuel, the co-pilot responded coolly as he arrogantly tilted his nose at the cabin ceiling. What do you think I am, a stupid twerpy kid? Take me to Montana, or I'll shoot. The two men looked at each other. And do it easy, I added. The plane banked to the right till the compass pointed due west. I felt a euphoric surge of adrenaline. It felt great to turn the tables on grown-ups. Can I ask what's going on? said the co-pilot. No. Why Montana? Not that it's any of my concern, said the pilot. No, it's not any of your concern. 
true, but I got a right to know why I'm doing something that will ruin my life. You sound like you watch too many soap operas, like my mother. Well, maybe not ruin my life, but something unpleasant will happen. Do you really want to know? Yes, I do, said the pilot. He turned to the co-pilot. How about you? Definitely, said the co-pilot in a more cooperative mood. The excitement I felt at finding not one, but two curious listeners, adults, I might add, was overwhelming. At last, someone wanted to hear my side of things. My father... I paused for dramatic effect. My father is sending me to a religious boarding school in Newmarket, Virginia. He never asked me what I want to do. He acts as if he owns me, and my life will never be the same. I want to go someplace far away so he can't find me, someplace he'll never think to look. The three of us looked at each other. What will you do there? I mean, how will you survive? I'm gonna live like a mountain man. The two men made eye contact. They were trying to stifle smiles. Hey, wait a minute. What are you trying to do? Sweet talk me? I interjected between their smirks. It was a great line from a James Cagney movie, and I had always wanted to say it to a grown-up. You don't care at all, do you? Of course I do. My father wanted me to be a trapeze artist in the circus, like he was, not a pilot. I ran away from home when I was fifteen. Wow, that sounds great to me. That's not the point. Kids shouldn't be bossed around by their parents like they own them. Yeah, right. I couldn't have agreed more, so I said it again. Right! I thought I heard a sound behind me as I turned my head. Drop it, kid! There was a touch of cold steel against the base of my skull as an arm came around and grabbed my gun hand. Before I could react, I was wrestled to the floor of the cabin and pinned down by two men. Who is this twerpy kid? I am not twerpy, I managed to garble. I'm twelve and a half years old. I'm just short for my age. The man who took away my gun was the navigator. Where'd this kid come from? He asked. And look at this gun. It's a cap pistol. The guy holding my head down on the floor with his foot was the bombardier. You were hijacking this plane with a cap pistol? It's Henry's. Belongs to a kid I know. It's a beauty, ain't it? It's chrome-plated with a fake ivory handle. I thought it would be perfect for this caper. Yeah, it is, except... It's still a cap pistol. Caper? You sound like you've been watching too many gangster movies, kid. The plane began to bank back to the left and head south. Ah, he's not so bad, said the pilot. His father just wants to send him away to a religious boarding school in Virginia without asking him if he likes the idea. He's desperate and very upset. He has to leave all his friends and his model airplanes, especially the one of this very same plane that he just finished. And he has to leave his pet cat, Percival. Oh, that is terrible, 
the navigator said. You've got too much spunk for that, kid. And you know, if you think about it, he said to the pilot, he really helped us by making us fly west. We missed the hurricane completely. I feigned a look of modesty and looked up sheepishly. Did you really name your cat Percival? Really? Yeah. Something wrong with that? Well, it's a sissy name, said the bombardier. Is not. Is so. Is not. Is so. All right, enough, you two, the pilot yelled. What are we going to do with him? asked the co-pilot. It'll look strange if we show up with him when we land in Florida. Yeah, that's true. I've been thinking about it, and I think I've got an idea, said the pilot. He wanted to parachute into the mountains of Montana to be a mountain man. Right, kid? That's a great idea, said the bombardier. We can't do that. There isn't enough fuel. Plus, the army might think we're stealing the plane and send a fighter to shoot us down and... Well, kid, we don't have any gunners or even bullets with us on this flight to defend ourselves. Guessing where the pilot was going with this, the co-pilot offered, How about the mountains of West Virginia? There was a general hubbub of yes among the men, which went on too long with far too much enthusiasm. I started to object. How about me? Don't I... During their excited conversation, the bombardier had stomped down harder on my neck. He eased his foot back so they could understand me. How about me? Don't I get a say? I repeated. I don't know anything about West Virginia. No, the four of them shouted immediately in unison. All that sweet talk of theirs about helping me was just that. Sweet talk. I was back to having no choice. Adults had taken over my what-if story. Son, please accompany the bombardier back to the bomb bay. He'll help you get ready for your jump. We're nearly over the target now. Jump as soon as the bomb bay doors open, kid, or you might miss those tall, rugged West Virginia mountains. His tone now seemed syrupy and phony, which reminded me of my father. Then he turned to the bombardier, and I heard him say under his breath, when I open the bomb bay doors, chuck the twerpy pain in the butt out. He turned back to me. We don't even know your name. What is it? He was sweet-voiced again. Kilroy to you. I heard you, you know. Cute. Very cute. Get twerpy pain in the butt out of here, he snarled. And then I was falling. I'm falling. I'm cold, too. So cold. Ah! I don't know what to do. I'm falling so fast I can't keep my mouth closed. I could choke on a bug. Just pull the ripcord, dummy, and stop wimping out, the other me told me. So, I pulled the ripcord. The chute opened, slowing down my fall. I was drifting over a wide, pastoral valley. Small villages and farms were sprinkled throughout a bucolic landscape. Farm animals dotted verdant pastures. Young children with the family dog were rollicking about in their yard. There was also one field with at least 20,000 turkeys staring up at me. Life was good. Hey, wait a minute, I said to myself. 
This doesn't look like the wild mountains of West Virginia. I think they threw me out in the wrong place. You know, they were going to just throw you out as soon as they could, just to get rid of you. And that's what they did, the other me said. The ground was coming up fast. There were some buildings, and I was crashing through tree limbs when everything suddenly stopped. I was scraped, cut, and bruised everywhere, and swinging ever so gently back and forth, about ten feet above the ground. A door opened in a nearby building. A boy in his early teens, with a peach fuzz face, walked over to the tree and looked up at me. He wore a frazzled straw hat, overalls with only one shoulder strap fastened, a red handkerchief in a back pocket, no shirt, a straw in his mouth, and he was barefoot and dirty. His face reminded me of David Von Ent, a boy from my eighth grade class. How'd you get there in this here tree? I was trying to get to the mountains in West Virginia. Well, Montana, originally. Oh, well, you did miss by my bit. Where am I? Y'all are in Newmarket, Virginia. What? Yep, at the Shenandoah Valley Academy. That's not possible, I protested. Why is that? I worked so hard to not be here. But y'all are here now. Why? I asked, a bit hysterically. It's God's will. Hallelujah. Three weeks later, my parents packed me in the back of their 49 Dodge four-door sedan with all my belongings and delivered me to the Shenandoah Valley Academy, a Seventh-day Adventist boarding high school in Newmarket, Virginia. Now, Virginia in the early 50s was still the good old South, and I, being from the bad old North, didn't exactly fit in. Especially since I lived a mere 13 miles from what was considered to be sinful New York City. I talked funny, dressed funny, and my voice hadn't changed yet. My dilemma at my new school was how to deal with an ethos devoted to a numbing view of life. Was the solution simply a matter of looking left for that second time in order to stay alive? I would learn that it wasn't quite that simple. This story is copyright 2022 by Jerry Viss. This recording is copyright 2022 by Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. Jerry Viss's memoir, I'm Not Here, Strange Relatives, A Stranger Boarding School, and The Saving Grace of Art and Love, is available everywhere books are sold. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com.